Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, where the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne, who is off this week. My guest this week is journalist and outdoor enthusiast Jeff Potter, who runs OutYourBackDoor.com. We talk about cross-country skiing, riding bikes, paddling boats, and even eating roadkill. And now my conversation with Jeff Potter. Well, Jeff, welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. Well, I think maybe we should start with what you do. Now, you have a huge website called um, OutYourBackDoor.com. Now, it also started as a print magazine, right? I mean, back in the back in the zine days, is that is that the case? Oh, yeah. Um, even before there were zines, I thought, well, I was into publishing and into magazines and, and worked on some. Uh, I graduated with a journalism degree, but I thought, you know, I wanted to take matters into my own hands because I didn't see real life being depicted in print. So I thought, I'm going to make my own magazine. And as I started looking into that subject, I realized other people are thinking the exact same thing. And this was 1990 on the nose. Wow. And so why did you pick the kind of outdoor topic? Is that something you've always been been into? Yeah, I guess that's right. As soon as I could, I've gotten out of buildings all my <laughs> life. Um, you know, not sitting in desks, not sitting in pews would be a major goal of my existence. <laughs> so I busted out as, as soon as I could on, on every occasion. Did you grow up in a city or a small town or where'd you grow up? Oh, um, let's see, uh, in a little town outside of Michigan State University, uh, near the Lansing area in Michigan. And you're still there, right? You're still in the same area? Yeah. Um, we now live about a mile from where I grew up and it's kind of an exurban sprawl situation, yet what allows us to stay sane is we have our little park-like setting. We have a couple acres of land and a little house, and we are associated with um, a church that is next to us. I mean, they're just our neighbors, and they have 20 acres of land. So I have built over a mile of trail all over the properties that we're all you know, connected together, and they're happy with that. Um, and so are we. And man, there's like uh, five community parks within a mile or so of here, too. So we do have a lot of natural beauty near us. And that allows our family to uh, to stay sane in this kind of mini mall suburban situation. Well, the, the trail thing's interesting. How did that, was that just a happy accident? Or did you settle where you are thinking like this is something you wanted to do? Well, I, I guess I've always had a nose for any kind of trails. And I think it is. It was just an accident. When we got this house, it's on a pretty piece of property, and it's connected to unused other forest property. So I just started using it, <laughs> um, and have I? I checked out the topography, and I'm also, you know, just a natural uh, designer type of person. And I just thought I'm going to lay out a trail here that uses this terrain to its advantage to catch all the good sight lines to get it as pretty as possible. And so we've been enjoying this trail for 20 years now. Wow. So you you use it and the people at the church use it? Is it a kind of public space or is it basically private? You have to be either part of your family or part of the church next door. Well, they they, uh, have it as a public resource. They put signs up and uh, have called it community meditation paths. They've had signage about that. But this being a suburban community, they're really, you know, is kind of low outdoor usership. 
Um, so not very many people have taken advantage of it. Uh, but it is free for the community to use, and there's parking at the church. People could use it. So when we were talking before I started recording, you were saying your kind of your activities, and it's I guess pretty obvious where you are. Not obvious for someone like me who lives in Los Angeles, but you have something called seasons, correct? <laughs> so your activities kind of revolve around those seasons. So maybe we could start right now. We're kind of between winter and spring right now, but uh, what, what kinds of things are you doing right now or it's just starting to, to get into? Well, it's, it's slightly a season of rest. Um, I've just come off of, a, of winter, like we do every year at this time, and in winter I go crazy for cross-country skiing. So this month is a little bit of mm, winding down from that usually, and uh, sometimes I get to enjoy spring skiing and corn snow skiing at this time of year. And that helps me stay happy. But actually, this is kind of our mud season, and we use it for spring cleaning and restacking firewood. And uh, it's not quite anything. I'm doing a little canoe paddling, and we're starting to ride bikes when the weather's nice. So a little bit of everything. Well, let's get back to the skiing. What was the? I couldn't hear you that last. Thing. Corn. It sounded like corn skiing to me. What, yes, what was, you're right. Is that right? What What is that? Corn snow is a miraculous substance that skiers love. It's, uh, it's just beautiful snow that uh, happens after snow's been frozen and thawed repeatedly. The snow crystals become large and round and juicy, and they're, they can withstand sunshine. So in, it's the essence of spring skiing. Um, you'll get a sunny, warm day, yet the snow doesn't just melt away. It's kind of got some ice properties to it. And skis love it, and I love it, and you can have, like, melting streams near you with, you know, babbling brooks happening. Nothing, it, things aren't frozen so much anymore, yet you can still have snow. And, man, around here we ski until you actually cannot ski anymore. We, we'll walk across mud with our skis to get to another little section of, of snow. We just kind of eat it up because we're, my friends and I are kind of crazy for skiing. For cross-country skiing. Now, do you do some downhill skiing, too? Oh, yes. Um, but we don't live where there are mountains. So. Uh, oh, duh. <laughs> sorry for being so no, you know, dense. But people travel to downhill resorts from here. Right, uh, so, right, right. You know, a couple hours away, you can get to downhill skiing. But like uh, your website, uh, you know, just we're into local things. And what's interesting is our ski gang is composed of a lot of top athletes and people who are elite downhill skiers who found themselves living in this vicinity. So we, we do the best we can with what we have, and we have just, this is world-class skiing, but it's for cross-country. So what we do is just morph the skiing to whatever is world-class, wherever we are. Um, I used to live in Breckenridge, Colorado for a couple of years, and I skied every day in the mountains there. But now that I live here, I ski every day there's snow with the snow that I have. Uh, closest to hand. I would rather just not drive. I'd rather have skiing than driving. So, And my friends agree. So we are connoisseurs of skiing, but it, we're completely happy with cross-country skiing. Uh, to us, skiing is wonderful if you have, um, say, like three things. If you have um, glide, as long as your skis are gliding, they're fun. Um, if you have rhythm, if you can experience you know, rhythm of turning and downhill skiing or rhythm of striding and cross-country, that makes skiing fun. And if you can have a sense of payoff where uh, you feel like you're getting back more than you put in, then that just makes us smile. So 
it's kind of funny that we're such expert skiers, yet we're totally happy in this very mild terrain. But we just romp and play all winter every year. <laughs> that sounds great. Now, how? What would you say? I don't. I don't know how to ski. How do I learn to cross country ski specifically? What would you recommend I I do? Well, uh, I would say take take a lesson. Um, you know, you could learn by yourself, but it'd probably be best to. Um, go to a ski area, rent skis, and find someone to show you how, who knows how to show people how. Um, that's the quickest way to get there. Um, it's, you know, that's what I, how I would suggest doing it. Just like someone would do for alpine skiing. Uh, you, you need the same kind of a lesson for uh, cross-country. Um, you, can, you can put cross-country skis on and just kind of schluff along and, and have a pleasant time. Just like people can uh, skip the lesson in downhill skiing and still have a decent time, but you're not really skiing if you don't have the the basic principles uh, taught to you. And you know, it's like uh, downhill skiing. People, most people, when they ski without lessons, are just kind of making turns like hockey stops, connected mm-hmm. hockey stops, going mm-hmm. down a hill. That's not really using the skis, and they're not delivering what they could be delivering for the skier. Uh, so if you get a lesson or two, you get a lot of payoff. So it, this is a really dumb question. So someone who's never been on cross-country skis, I don't even have a conception of it. If the land is perfectly flat, I mean, it, it's, you, I, I see people do it. It doesn't look difficult to do. And I'd say, well, why do I need a lesson, right? But right. there's still, I mean, of course, in the terrain here, cross-country skiing, there's going to be a little bit of downhill periodically yeah, sure. right so i still need to know how to turn and stop and all that is that what we're kind of talking about yeah there, it's just some basics these aren't hard lessons and they won't take that long <laughs> but uh you can you know they will pay off there there'll be kind of uh you'll be happy you, you took them the main idea is teaching people uh to really use weight transfer you know to put their weight from one foot to the next to weight and unweight the skis to move them around and to make them work and to make them turn. Um, without lessons, people will tend to um, not do that. They will kind of schluff along and, and never commit. And they won't get the... Committing, doing full weight transfer actually gives stability, lets the skis do what they're designed to do. But unless you have an instructor helping you do that, you will tend to not transfer the weight. And then you are, the skis will trip you up, and you won't get good results from them. Would you say it's easier than downhill skiing, or just different? Yeah, I, I would. It's just different, and also it's just the same. So, weight transfer is the key to downhill skiing as well. You, you know, you drop down with your, you flex in your ankles and your knees, and then you stand up, and that puts weight on the skis and lets them turn. And then as you drop again, it unweights, and that lets you um, lift them up and put them in a new position. So weighting and unweighting is key to both um, downhill skiing and to um, cross-country skiing. Now, do you race on cross-country skis, too? Yeah. I, I raced on you know, both downhill and cross-country, and I, I still race quite a bit on cross-country. And I, Actually, I like, I've uh, been pushing an innovation called trail skiing which is kind of like the mountain bike version of uh, cross-country skiing. And we don't use the groomed trails. We just ski any old trail, and uh, we're having a blast doing it. And it's, uh, it's an aspect where I'm trying to uh, promote you know, innovation in the sport. So it's like trail racing, basically, but on skis. Yeah, right. 
and we have we have you know like a half a dozen events a year in our our neck of the woods for trail skiing. It's hard to get the serious cross country skiers to participate, but we do from time to time. Are they too snooty or something? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a funny scene. It's a subject that I'm fascinated by, and I love to write about it in on my uh, website. Um, but basically, a lot of cross country skiing now, or the main part of cross country, is like road bike racing. Oh, they're roadies with the the lycra and roadie mindset right you know and that's wonderful that's really high speed and it's for paved roads just like cross-country most cross-country racing is on these highly refined and groomed ski surfaces Uh uh-huh so they use very delicate equipment and they wear the lycra stuff and they go fast well we're more like the mountain bike kind of skiing interesting so it's it's for people who like more technical challenge and uh you know rough and ready kind of skiing and I don't know. We love it. Uh, But then again, it's probably because we don't live near very much groomed skiing. So we just ski the snow we have and we ski the trails we have. And we have a great time. And I'm kind of a missionary for it because most people don't live near groomed skiing, even if they live near snow. So Mm -hmm. my message is just get out there and ski with whatever snow you have and don't um, wish that you lived, you know, closer to the fancy stuff. You can have a lot of fun with just plain old snow. Now, it's kind of interesting. I mean, you mentioned this cultural thing. There, there is these these kind of uh, tribes, right, with all this stuff. Um, yeah, and I, I guess you've thought a lot about that. Uh, so you're saying you can get like a $10,000 carbon fiber kind of ski too, right? It's that same mindset with the... Oh, oh yes. Uh, wow. <laughs> you can get lots of them and different sets of nearly identical carbon fiber skis for every snow and weather condition. Wow. And then when the, the conditions are slightly off, the people will sometimes not ski. <laughs> rather, because they're afraid of scratching the ski if the wow. conditions aren't good enough, supposedly. But, man, if there's snow on the ground, we're just skiing so hard. <laughs> and our gear doesn't cost as much, and we just have a blast. Um, you know, we'd like to think you couldn't have any more fun. Well, what what minimum would it cost to just get into but you're the kind of skiing you're doing just i guess normal winter clothes and and a basic yeah. pair of skis what are we talking about well i tend to often use just my actual normal winter clothes i don't buy any special clothes for skiing really mm-hmm. um, so i just wear my clothes and when you you know if you're moving around outside you stay plenty warm and you can i think look nicer sometimes <laughs> yeah know, right it's kind of fun to wear, you know, good-looking clothes rather than just... Not everyone looks great in Lycra, put it that way. Um, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> kind of funny. And, you know, there's more than one look in the world, so um, it's nice to be able to wear a wide variety of things. But the ski gear, well, of course, you can... This kind we use, you can actually buy secondhand quite frequently, so if you want to go really cheap, you can do that. But to buy brand-new ski gear suitable for trail skiing... You can get yourself totally set up, you know, for a few hundred bucks as opposed to, you know, well, I guess regular ski racing is more on the order of a, a thousand or two to get fully set up. Now, speaking of Lycra, you have a, a passion for bikes, which I'm sure we could talk for a couple hours about. Uh-huh. Um, is there, um, and it's certainly, you know, actually I met this, one time I met this bike salesman guy and he worked for one of the big companies and he told me that his company had divided the bike market into something like 120 different niches, <laughs> you know, 
Wow. Uh, it was fascinating, you know, and they were developing bikes for each of these kind of niches, you know, things like certain different kinds of mountain biking, different types of commuting, bike touring, racing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if I were to go to your garage and look at your bikes, what kind of what kind of bikes do you have? What's your favorite kind of uh, riding that you do? Um, yeah, I'm I'm lucky. I do have a garage. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a few of them, and yeah, it is interesting to think that, that is that's a good subject of you know if you could have just one bike. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, I'm sure it would just be a sport touring bike, an all around road bike that has room for a variety of tire width from skinny for the road to wide for the dirt. Um, I, I think I could do just one bike. So most of my riding is done on kind of a, a, a lively touring bike. Um, I've done races on it, and I ride dirt on it, and I ride urban streets uh, with it. Are there so, drop handlebars? And Yeah, I do have drop bars on that bike. Uh-huh. But, you know, I have a tandem. I've got a mountain bike. I've got road bikes. I've got a cross bike. I do have... A few bikes, and uh, and the, everybody in the family has a bike, so we have kind of a fleet down there that I'm always trying to keep functional. Do you ride throughout the winter? Mm, no, I can. I do occasionally, but boy, winter is so much fun for skiing that I kind of switch. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, skiing just keeps you so warm and nice. And when biking in the winter is the upper body is kind of stationary. Mm-hmm. When it's 20 degrees, the wind blowing on me is not always the nicest but people do it and you can adapt and it can be nice also but boy skiing at 20 degrees is just pure heaven so and i work at home when when i was commuting for work i did commute year-round on the bike and it was fun how far was your commute uh four miles each way and it was on that um the kind of bike you're talking about this basic commuter bike yeah yeah right um of course sometimes it would snow an awful lot and maybe get extra cold and i would use a mountain bike then just to, it's a fun challenge just to solve the weather problem on a bike for any time of year. But I would ride down to 20 below zero and it would be comfy and I would just laugh and think, yes, it's doable. Yes, this is still good. What's your advice to people who are thinking about commuting to work? What, what, what kind of bike would you get? What kind of clothing? How would you, what would you recommend? Well, a bike that you could have a, a rack on and put panniers on or a basket of some kind so you can just, you know, bring stuff, lunch, work gear, uh, extra pair of clothes. So you you just want to, I would think, you know, a, a touring type bike with fenders and racks and lights and a bell and uh, you'd be good to go year round. I like to just ride most of the time wearing regular clothes and in short order, if you don't ride super hard, you dry off and and you can just keep wearing your normal clothing, but it depends on the clothing standards of where you're working. Uh, you know, you'd want a bike, you could bring your stuff on. I don't like riding with a backpack because I sweat up on my back. Yeah, my life my life changed when I discovered panniers, too. It just, nice? It's so much nicer, yeah. Yeah, let the bike do the work. Exactly. And also, it's like you're that you know having that heavy thing on your upper body too is just it's just so much easier with the the panniers. Yeah, it's it's a nice way to go, and then then you can have a good reason to own a nice set of panniers. <laughs> exactly, which I got on sale at REI. They weren't that expensive. Oh, neat! But it's true, you do have to have the bike with the with the rack though, and not all bikes have the easy to attach. Uh, what are those called? The little eyelets you can attach that yeah. to. That's something to think about. I think. Right, and. And 
you need a bike that has enough space for tires that are kind of um, generous and cushy. I think when you get good tires, the wide ones, this is something of n in new bike science. Um, they're discovering that well-made tires can be quite big and cushy and still very light and fast. Um, so for commuting and urban riding, it's nice not to beat yourself up with like um, you know race wheels. Um, well, yeah. What what sort of wheel are you? What does it look like? The the wheel, the kind of ideal commuting wheel. I well, you know, you got everyone has to just solve it for what their commute is like. But um, I just don't like a harsh riding experience, so I tend to use a a high quality, somewhat wide tire, you know, like thirty two millimeter to forty millimeter tire, and of um, it absorbs the uh, expansion cracks in concrete roads and. I don't know. I, I almost think that dual suspension mountain bikes have just as much of a place in the urban biking scene as they mm. do on, on dirt trails because of all the bumps and potholes that are out there. So I personally like trying to solve and tailor my bike situation for a smooth ride. Some some wide tires actually, though, are, are kind of thick and they can be harsh as well. So I like to get a nice thin wide tire, uh, thin fabric, but kind of wide. And then you can run it at slightly lower pressures, and it you don't feel the bumps hardly at all, and and you don't get flats. And uh, a nice thing is they've they've been discovering that a softer pressure on a tire doesn't get cut as easily by glass and wire and things like that. Really, I thought it was the other way around. Yeah, it's this is some new stuff just in the last couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. The higher the air pressure, the more likely any debris is to penetrate the tire. Mm -hmm. And then you need, but then. Tire designers help people offset that by putting in those uh, uh, layers of armoring in the tire. Mm -hmm. So that can prevent flats in a high-pressure tire, but then again, it makes the ride harsher. So what they're discovering is that a nice, thin, supple tire run at a lower pressure resists all kinds of injury just by the fact that it, when it runs over even a piece of glass, uh, it's not forcing the glass into itself. It's, um, it's kind of neat. It kind of wraps around the um, the object rather than uh, getting cut by it. Wow! Well, I need to get a new bike, and <laughs> <laughs> I I have I just I got it years ago. I'm kind of saddled with it. It's it's a sort of racy bike with very thin tires, high yeah. pressure. Bamity bamity bam bam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the and the streets are. I mean, probably I don't know. Maybe worse where you are. I don't know. The streets of L.A. are terrible. There's all kinds of potholes and. You know, bad in our urban riding, it's pretty bad. We laugh about it. In fact, it's almost like a moonscape. Oh, really? Yeah, it can be pretty bad. So I don't use narrow, hard, high pressure tires around here. Well, actually, you've ridden in both places because you were out here recently. Is it yeah, is worse where you I, are? That's how I found out about you by you know visit. I was just visiting L.A. and uh, and that's where I was thinking about dual suspension mountain bikes. <laughs> <laughs> But by and large, boy, I really enjoyed my week of riding bikes and visiting L.A. What a, I think it's a wonderful city to bike in. And say something about that. What? What? I mean, how does it compare to where you are? Did you feel less safe, or uh, what? I felt similarly safe. I just felt perfectly safe. I just I enjoy your neighborhoods. Uh, I had zero car friction. Um, I don't get car friction around here either. Um, I think the whole United States is getting treating bikers better by and large. You know, I haven't had um, much bike hostility in 20 years about, but say t 25 years ago, people seemed to feel free to be mean to me a lot. So 
you know, I noticed there was a change in, in recent decades mm -hmm. that are nicer to bikers, and I really do appreciate that. Also, electric fences in the countryside for dogs. Oh. You know, like, they don't need to be on chains. They're these invisible fences. That's really changed the rural situation for riding bikes. Um, dogs no longer come out and try to get you. Did you have a strategy for when that happened? Because I assume you've been chased a lot. Yeah, I, I had water bottles, squirt them, and then also a long bike pump. Nowadays, bike pumps are often quite small, and I, that's, I use a small pump. But back then, I definitely had a large frame pump, and uh, I, could, I knew definitely how to deploy it in an instant. <laughs> now, you also race bikes, too, is that right? What kind yeah. of racing do you do? Oh, nowadays, um, now that I'm getting older... Yeah, yeah I was just going to ask that. Do you mind saying how old you are? Oh, I'm 54 now. Okay. So, no, I don't mind. Um, but, you know, I don't have the power and speed that I used to, and I just enjoy the subtlety of cycling probably more than I used to. Um, so I'm, I'm really liking cyclocross tremendously. So I enjoy doing that whenever I can. It uh, has a lot of flowing feel to it, and it just makes me laugh and smile all the time with the, the crazy things you need to do to get around. A lot of mud and slip, slipperiness. Yeah, now some people listening to this might not know what cyclocross is, so maybe you should just briefly well, say what it is. It's uh, bike racing with a kind of a road bike in a more of a mountain bike situation. So you're doing uh, off-road bike racing but using a road bike, basically. And people do use their mountain bikes, but it, it tends to be a kind of a course that is... Uh, involves more trickiness and technicalities and handling and obstacles than a regular mountain bike course would have. So it, it's not designed for like full-out speed, but a lot of uh, very tricky corners involved, and um, including especially off-camber corners. That's the big thing in cyclocross, trying to wipe you out on a corner. The designers have a field day with trying to mess <laughs> up the riders. Um, cyclocross also tends to happen in a small footprint. Uh, it can be done in a lot of urban parks. That's a, it's kind of an urban form of bike racing that where you don't have to be on the mean streets. So they'll have it set in a city park, and you just run your course wherever the designer wants you to go, and, and they try to see who can handle their bike and get around it the quickest. And they hope it rains and make, and make it difficult for everyone. There's also quite a bit of um, uh, dismounting involved and remounting and running with your bike in cyclocross. So... They'll put up these hurdles, they'll uh, make you run up hills or upstairs, and it's kind of fun getting on and off your bike smoothly and also carrying you know, the bike either in your hands or on your shoulders. And uh, it can just be a blast, especially with, when you're doing it with a couple dozen other people. Cool. And uh, bike touring, I take it, is something that you also do. Vacations, things like that? Yeah, I, I do that now and then, but mostly it's just daily biking. Mm. And we're big fans around here of the... Uh, the S240, the sub 24 hour overnight uh, bike ride that was, uh, it's a concept popularized by Grant Peterson of Rivendell mm -hmm. uh, a decade or so ago, and it's kind of caught on. I mean, it's an obvious thing. You just go have a bike tour in your neighborhood <laughs> and camp out near where you live. Um, so it's a, uh, it's a kind of bike adventure that you can do in one day. So, you know, don't, don't put too much expectation on bike touring in a dramatic place for a week, but, um, you know, do it near where, you're, near where you live and work. Out your back door. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, you want to say something about the social aspect of biking that you've been working on? Oh, yeah. Well, thanks, Eric. Yeah, I, I, that's my, my big new thing. Um, I had my 
my own personal years of being a, a bike race uh, introverted person, you know, <laughs> of training all the time for focusing on results. And, you know, that actually was not all that rewarding in the long run. Um, but it seems like the social aspect of cycling just has so much to offer. And, and it's not, of course, competitive. And it can offer a lot to everyone. So I've turned in that direction around here. And we've been building up a uh, social cycling scene here in, in the mid-Michigan area. And it's just been a blast to be a part of that. So when I was out in L.A. visiting your town, you know, I participated in the uh, L.A. critical mass. And that was really fun. We had zero negative uh, interaction with any motorists, and so it's more what I would call a bike party nowadays than a uh, you know than activism per se. Just it's fun finding out the uh, that the activist side of cycling can be just having a nice time in a community, and and we're finding that that is socially contagious. So do you organize a critical mass there, or well, we what, what sort we of don't events do you that do? Anymore. We we basically we say that critical mass succeeded. Bikes are accepted around here now, and now we're just trying to welcome everyone in the community into cycling. And it's just been so enjoyable doing this. Um, we're trying to bring what has been a kind of older ma- guy activity um, into access- accessibility and acceptance to uh, women, youth, and minorities in our community like it never has been before. You know, it was very encouraging to see the diversity of riders in L.A., but we want to do that here, too. And it's it's just been a gas trying to figure out what kind of cycling do people respond to? What do they want? You know, what can turn turn them on to cycling? And we're just finding that bike picnics and uh, riding bikes to music festivals and old bikes with boom boxes, these kinds of uh, bike activities, are homemade bikes, bike cruiser bikes, these kinds of things are what everyone feels they can participate in cycling with. And uh, so I just, it's been a really fun time for us here. We we organize several rides a week, and it's very casual. And how do you do that? Is it social media or right. posters, or what do you, you know, do? We've been doing it with social media, but it's, it's hilarious how I would say at least half of the participants just hear it word of mouth. Uh, they, they're not on Facebook. They say they just... You know, or maybe they saw us. We we often will pick up a dozen riders just as we ride along. People will notice us going by, and they'll turn around and come in and join our group. Yeah, have you been successful in in getting more women on bikes? Because I know that's that's even an issue here. There's always more men than women. Right. Seems I think like it's it's been hugely successful. I I think the uh, uh, there's like a low hanging fruit, and the low hanging fruit in cycling in this area is safety in numbers. If we mm. get a, a dozen riders out. People feel safe to join in with us, and and the motorists also completely notice and enjoy seeing us when we're in kind of a group having fun. You know, maybe they'll honk at a single cyclist, but what they do is they wave at us if we're like a dozen or a couple dozen of us. Just continuous positive interaction with every part of the community. So it's been a, a marvelous uh, experience to to discover this new side of cycling and to encourage it. And, you know, kind of a. a a footnote is that some of the only places where we've had friction with our this project is with the established cycling world. <laughs> really? Yeah. So, you know, it's something new. And they've been doing things one way for a long time. So They being the, the, the uh, Lycra crowd or uh, uh, some other tribe? Yeah, the Lycra crowd is one. And another one may be the, uh, the hyper-technocratic safety crowd. 
Oh, yeah. the uh, oh, what are they called? The um, vehicular cyclist folks. Could be that right. Uh, people are used to just riding on their own in a in 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 their own world. Envisioning their own world view is that it's a highly hostile world, so they're completely armored up and wearing the high vis, and totally their mm. bikes are like command centers for <laughs> generally for data mining as well as all safety oh. tools. You know, it's the the technocratic approach to cycling. Well, there's the whole Strava thing, yeah, right? That, that too, yeah. you know, it's really something. So when they see the rusty cruiser bikes, people riding with flip flops with a boombox. It's not a world they can relate to necessarily. Right. But what's right. funny is they could do both. And so we've had a fair right. amount of crossover, but yet I would say that is almost one of the only places we've had friction. <laughs> the the motorists <laughs> love us, and so do the neighborhood people, and that's our main thrust. And also, we're getting a wider variety of riders than any other kind of riding group around, and so that makes us happy. Mm. So it's, a, it's an ongoing thing with... You know, trying to maintain and grow positive relations with everybody. Now, I want to talk about boats, too, because this is something I would like to... I've done a little kayaking, but would like to um, get back into that at some point. Um, what about kayak versus canoe? Where do you stand on that? Aha. Uh-huh. I've got a fairly clear stance on that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you happen to glance at that on my website. I did, but, but maybe say <laughs> something about that. Yeah. Um, it just, to me, I... You, go by how the boats were designed. Um, kayaks are designed for wind and waves. Um, you know, whitewater rapids on rivers or big windy waves on open water. Um, that's why they're closed hulls and they are designed to handle rough conditions and not get blown around or not get tipped over. Um, canoes are, you know, tend to be larger open hull boats and they're designed for quieter water by and large. So if you have a inland lake or uh, a quiet inland river that's where canoes have evolved from and where they work really well we get we get a, a little cranky around here where basically all our thousands of miles of rivers are dominated by the mass marketing of kayaks so people end up kind of stuck in these hulls where they can't put much stuff they can't bring their dogs very easily they can't have their friends come along it's like one person stuck in each little boat on these rivers and the sport ends up a little less popular I think so there's a funny cultural dynamic going on in mm. paddle sport around around the Midwest where the canoe is the ideal tool for the job but the salesmanship is pushing the kayaks is there a particular kind of canoe that you you like I like the lightest possible one <laughs> mm-hmm. you know I, I notice it when I'm paddling a little bit but I notice it more when I have to portage the thing which I like doing you know, portaging canoes kind of reminds me of cyclocross. It, right. it, it really does. I enjoy paddling up to an obstacle, getting out, and putting my boat over it, and getting back in quickly. <laughs> cyclocross has kind of ruined me for a lot of things. <laughs> but mostly I like a light canoe for putting the thing on and off of a vehicle or carrying it around. Um, so I, I love, you know, I like a beautiful canoe, but it sure helps when they're lightweight. What about kayaks? Do you have a, because I think I'm in a kayak area here. We got ocean. Yeah. Yeah, when you have White the ocean, water, kayaks like are that. wonderful. Yep. Um, boy, I, <laughs> kayaks, you can get in trouble almost like with boat or with bikes, um, with the, the garage filling up syndrome. <laughs> right. I, I, think I have about six boats down there as well. It's great to have a nice, fast kayak for smoother water, and it's also great to have a, a kayak that has quite a bit of um, rocker to it. Mm-hmm. 
um, so that it can actually move quickly in steep waves. It can look like a, a well-made kayak can look like it may not be that fast because of the curvature to it or the rocker to the hull. But if you're out in waves, that kind of a boat moves through waves really nicely, and it'll actually be faster than a uh, a straighter sort of boat hmm. when it's wavy out. And kayaks are so much fun because you can roll them. I I just love rolling a kayak. It, when it's hot out in the summertime, it's just an excuse to get wet. <laughs> Go, you know, paddle into the waves and just get, I don't know, get wet. <laughs> well, that would be the kind with the cockpit and, and skirt and everything, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Which you probably should know how to do that, too, right? Yeah, right. You should have a class. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not too hard to learn how to do, but it mm. sure is once you figure it out. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the whole, you know, aquatic world can become your oyster, so to speak. And uh, you can have an, oh, I just enjoy the immersion experience of kayaking a lot. The rolling. Yeah, and yeah. also uh, high bracing. is mm. a, it's, That basically amounts to immersing, immers- getting half immersed. Mm-hmm. When you're paddling and a wave kind of sweeps in on you from the side, you don't want to roll or anything, but the, it will absorb you in the boat to an extent. And in order not to tip over, you may stick the paddle blade in the wave, and it will kind of wash in on your arm and shoulder and on the boat a bit. But you're not tipping over. It's you're doing what's called high bracing into the wave. Hmm. You know, it's a semi-immersed experience. You're going to get wet. Well, one thing, you'll next time you're out here, you're going to have to show me how to land one on a beach here because that <laughs> was tricky well, the time I tried that. So, um, Landing them where it's sheltered is really the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that the secret? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but, boy, yeah, exposed landings, that can take a few tries. <laughs> it was thrilling. Yeah, either the taking off part can take a while mm-hmm. and the getting back part. It, mm. You know, actually, I can't say I'm an, an expert at either one. I, <laughs> I flounder and I just keep trying it. And if I can't, I give up. <laughs> but generally, if you get your gumption together, you wait for it to get timed right. <laughs> and then you just got to be quick. Kind of the opposite of surfing. You're trying not to catch the wave. but Yeah. Oh, boy. You can get messed up if you... I recommend, highly recommend trying to do all this in a sheltered spot. Okay, that answers that. <laughs> so should I buy or build a boat? Oh, well, I'm sure building is a marvelous experience in the world of bikes <laughs> or boats. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it can, you know, depends on your time. Um, you know, then there is also the secondhand market. That's right. kind of been my way to go. I, oh, yeah. I, I tend to bump into and know people who are much more enthusiastic in these activities than I am even. Mm-hmm. So. I get a lot of hand-me-downs and cast-offs and bargains with someone who's wanting to upgrade or change what they're doing, and I get a marvelous, you know, tool that is still wonderful, but they're not wanting to use anymore. Um, are you telling me that garages in America are full of unused exercise equipment? Uh, <laughs> there you have it. Beautiful bikes that could be had for twenty bucks, <laughs> and boats, and skis. There you go. Now, uh, I would be remiss. We're running out of time, unfortunately, because we could talk for hours to you, Jeff. But uh, I would be remiss in not bringing up something that NPR outscooped me on, which is your uh, prowess in the world of roadkill cuisine. So yeah. you want to say something about uh, that? And well, what, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. We, we walk, my wife and I and our kids and my relatives. I, I grew up around here. And my, my brothers and my family all live here. Well, Everyone is out and about, and we they call when they see if a deer or other tasty creature has been recently clumped on the road, and they notice it. 
you know, and as we're walking, we'll just, if you, you walk around the block and when you started out around the block, there wasn't a deer in the road. And when you were finishing up, there's a dead deer in the road. This is a fresh deer. I will uh, inspect the deer. And in most cases, they've been lightly clunked and they're still dead. And the law in this, in this uh, state is such that you can have these animals. And uh, sometimes you have to phone in. You should, everybody should know what their, uh, what their local laws are. Um, but by and large, you can salvage roadkill. And I find that they're just fresh and tasty and undamaged. So I, I get a lot of our family's meat just from what gets hit by cars out on the street in front of our house. Now we're talking mostly venison here. Are there other things that you... Well, let's see. I've done, um, yeah, I've gotten pheasants and turkeys and, and squirrels and just things that are lightly clipped. Um, it's hard for me to pass them up when there is a, a very fresh, tasty animal out there. I, I just tend to bring it, bring it home. Um, now, I think on the website you said you do this mostly in the winter. Is that right? Or Yeah, when it's cold, of course, the fresh portion lasts longer. Um, so uh, a deer will stay nicer, longer, the colder it is. And the, the seasons where the animals are moving the most tend to be in the transitional times of year. So it will be a little colder out typically. And when it's cold out, it's, it is a, a more like a sterile environment for sanitation. But, you know, I've never had a problem with any roadkill. The meat is always of the highest quality. And I've, I've been a hunter and a, you know, a fisherman over the years. I'm finding that my hunting is going down because I can just so easily get the meat right from within a mile of the house on the street that I don't need to spend the hours in the woods anymore um, hunting for my deer when it's basically delivered to me. For free, um, yeah. And it is just so tasty. It's, you know, superior meat. Occasionally a deer is, you know, hit on one side and that side will be bad. And then the other side is unscathed and I can just butcher that. Now, you have two teenage kids. Uh, have you passed on all these interests to the kids? And how, how has your outdoor life influenced your, your life as a, as a dad? Well, we've definitely, both my wife and I have passed these things on to our kids. And they've participated in all these activities with us, including, including the roadkill, which is, you know, our kids know about all these things. And they've all had good times doing what we do. I don't think they've ever been really miserable with us. Um, you know, we just do biking, boating, and skiing with the kids all the way up until the age of their teen years when they said, Mom, Dad, it is now uncool for us to be seen with you. <laughs> for each of the kids from that point on, their outdoor life has been their own. And, uh, you know, they still will do activities from time to time. But our son is into rock bands mostly. You know, he plays music a lot. And our daughter just, well, she's just having fun now. But they'll use their bikes just as a matter of course. You know, they're not, they're not particular uh, outdoor enthusiasts, but they're just happy outside. So I think it's worked out well. We do miss having them do things with us, but that's the teen years for us. <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, you want to say something about your website and how people can find it? and. Oh, well, sure. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, it's just outyourbackdoor.com, and it covers a wide range of do-it-yourself outdoor activities. Uh, my wife's website is lazygal.com, and she's a fiber artist. And uh, our kids really don't have a website, but they've made art and sold it you know, their whole lives, basically. Um, so it's, it's been fun. We go to art fairs and things and have booths, and uh, it's been kind of a uh, family affair for our um, do-it-yourself world. 
All right. Well, well, thank you, Jeff. Yeah, I'm glad to uh, have joined in on your your podcast, Eric. And I also was really happy just to discover your website thanks to our uh, mutual friend Lena Lightman. And, yes, uh, thank you, Lena, for hooking us up. It's it's neat to see someone who's basically trying to do something similar but different to what I'm trying to do. There you go. Well, thanks, Jeff. That was Jeff Potter. His website is outyourbackdoor.com. His wife, Martha Bishop's website, which you should definitely take a look at, is lazygal.com. Martha does some amazing ceramic and fabric art. Jeff has a bunch of how-to-cross-country ski videos that you can find on YouTube on the Out Your Backdoor YouTube channel that I'll link to in the show notes for this podcast, which you can find at rootsimple.com under the podcast tab. This show is episode 82. Jeff's cross-country ski videos were made for people who just want to ski and don't want to squeeze into Lycra. Jeff also has a store on his website where you can find all kinds of stuff for outdoor living. And again, his website is outyourbackdoor.com. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website, which is rootsimple.com. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.